0: Hello, everyone. In this podcast, we will be discussing sensitive topics such as sexual assault. It's important to take care of yourself while listening. Some suggestions are listening while you're in a healthy headspace or knowing who you can reach out to if you become upset. Our 24-7 helpline for crisis calls based out of Central Florida is 407-500-HEAL. By contacting the national hotline at 1-800-656-4673, You can get support and learn about your local resources. There's always someone ready to help. Service Center podcast. Here we sit down with professionals that serve survivors and victims of trauma or those who've experienced violence and have conversations about social issues. This week, we are talking about Margaret's story. My name is Emily Mitchell. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm the education coordinator at the Victim Service Center of Central Florida. With me today, I have Margaret Holser. Margaret uses she, her pronouns, and is a double Olympian and three-time Olympic medalist in swimming, as well as a former world record holder. At the 2008 Beijing Olympics, she was awarded silver medals in the 200-meter backstroke and the 400-meter medley relay. Margaret is an accomplished public speaker and vocal advocate for victims of sexual abuse, having given speeches on TEDx and at various conferences and fundraisers around the country, and is currently the national spokesperson for the National Children's Advocacy Center. In her speeches, Margaret shares her personal experience as a survivor of sexual abuse and focuses on lighting the path toward healing for other victims, their families, and friends. So Margaret, we are so, so excited to have you here. So thank you so, so much for being here today.
1: Yes, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you guys for having me.
0: And I also have joining us today and returning Joellen Ravel. So Joellen uses she, her pronouns and is the Victim Service Center Program Director who oversees the advocacy, therapy and forensic nursing department. She is a licensed clinical social worker with over 20 years experience in clinical and administrative oversight. So Joellen, thanks for coming back once again onto the podcast.
2: It's always a pleasure to be here. I'm very excited to have this conversation with Margaret.
0: Yeah, me too. I'm super excited, Margaret. And just as a brief description of this podcast, this episode, April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month, which is a time to uplift and highlight this issue and talk about ways we can support survivors and help end sexual violence. So during this month, we will be releasing podcasts highlighting voices of survivors and their healing journeys. As well as advocating for victims' rights and ways we can all do our part in preventing violence. So this week we are super honored to be hosting Olympic swimmer Margaret Holzer to chat about her experience with childhood sexual abuse, the common effects childhood trauma and minimization can have on survivors, and ways we can help support survivors of childhood sexual abuse. So with that, Joelle and I just wanted to start off with some Um, just, you know, definitions like I normally do on my podcast, which is, you know, that umbrella of sexual violence. We talk a lot about that and the terms that fall under it. So could you talk a little bit about that umbrella and some of those terms like childhood sexual abuse, sexual assault, things like that?
2: I definitely want to make sure that everyone who's listening realizes and understands that this is a sensitive topic and want to make sure anyone who's triggered Gets their safe space for themselves. So, sexual assault covers, generally speaking, terms that are utilized for adult violence that is sexual in nature. And the term sexual abuse is generally when it involves a minor or child sexual abuse when it involves a minor. But I, I certainly want to have a good disclaimer to say, you know, we're not law enforcement. We are not the state attorney, we are a nonprofit and we serve victims. And so for individuals who are listening in states outside of Florida, there may be different terms or definitions as it relates to abuse versus assault slash battery, rape. And we've talked about in past podcasts that that not everybody uses the term rape or sees rape um, in the same manner, Many times victims don't because they think of rape as a very violent assault, and that's not necessarily the case. So I kind of want to put it out there. I think it's important for any listener to really get to know the laws and the rules about where they live or what jurisdiction they're in, in terms of understanding the layers of terminology, because there is a, a wealth of different terminology when it comes to assault with a deadly weapon or assault involving you know, a vulnerable adult, things of that nature.
0: I really appreciate you breaking that down, Joelle. And you mentioned, you know, the VSA is a nonprofit, but we're also a certified rape crisis center. So I was hoping that you could also explain what a rape crisis center is and then what is a children's advocacy center?
2: Excellent point. So very important to understand and realize that in every community there should be, and if there's not, there should be efforts to work towards getting rape crisis centers and children's advocacy centers. So Victim Service Center is a rape crisis center and we are certified for Orange County, Osceola County and Seminole County, Florida. And by virtue of us being certified, we are the single sole provider of rape crisis work in the county. But interestingly, and it's important to note that what we do in two of those counties is we start working with people at age 12 years old. But in the other county, it is not until 18 years old. So it's very much county specific in terms of age of starting. Um, most children's advocacy centers and, and what, what they are, are they they are community-based service centers that really wrap around professionals when it comes to a child victim. And it's not just a child victim of sexual violence. It could be of physical violence, emotional abuse. And they wrap themselves around in terms of professional support and services so that that individual child can heal and the perpetrator can be identified and prosecuted but most of them serve 0 to 18 years old in our county they do serve up until 18 for some crimes but when it comes to sexual violence we get referred those individuals who are 12 and older because our agency performs forensic examinations following a sexual assault and so our nurses who are able to do that sexual assault nurse examiners are able to assist both adolescents and adults in getting that rape kit. Thank
0: you, Joel. And yeah, I just, I always like to kind of start off my podcast with just kind of a framework for everyone to start off with as just kind of a foundation. But with that, I'd like to further more definitions as we go through this conversation. So Margaret, I was hoping you could maybe define exactly what grooming is and can you can grooming actually expand beyond affecting just the victim?
1: Absolutely. Um, that's a great question. So grooming is essentially the perpetrator getting to know the child. And it's that process of asking them questions, finding out likes, dislikes. Um, and and it's, it's honestly, in a lot of ways, not that different than than. And, and normal getting to know a person process. Um, but obviously it's it's you know in a slightly creepy way <laughs> because of the intent behind it, right? Like there's not a a positive intent, you know, behind it. Um, but traditionally we think of grooming as only being towards the victim. And and really grooming is the entire community. It's the parents. It's the You know the the other neighbors it's it's everyone in the Community, which is part of the way that they're able to be successful, I think one of the things that's especially unique to children. um, Although it's not only children is in order to have access to a child typically you don't just. You can't just walk up to a child and have access to them. Right. You have to, you know, you have to kind of go through the gatekeepers, which are the parents, which are, you know, maybe the teachers or the coaches or, you know, there's there's just people around. And so in order to make those people comfortable, um, these perpetrators are are honestly very good at what they do. And they're usually nice and people like them. and, And that's why after the fact, when people find this out, there's usually this, this adverse reaction where people go, what? No, I've known this person for 20 years. They were my neighbor or I I worked with them or we had them over for barbecues, right? Like there's usually this very palatable reaction um, because people were groomed and they do know this person and they, they like this person. And, and that's that's why this is so hard is, is if it was Hannibal Lecter and, and, and if this person was scary, <laughs> they wouldn't be very good at what they do.
0: That is such a good point. I think that you bring up kind of, I never thought of it as grooming can actually be part of like the whole system in general. I didn't know it would could affect the entire family unit and even the community like you were mentioning. So I think that's really important to highlight when we talk about things like grooming. Um, Would you be able to share a little bit about your experience with grooming and the effects that it had on you and your healing?
1: Absolutely. Um, So I have a a great story um, sort of about when I was being groomed and uh, I was at, so I was abused from the ages of five to seven, just for a little context. And it was by a good friend of mine's father And so this was a house that i was going to on you know regular play dates they were coming over to my house that kind of thing and so we were at my friend's house you know one time and we were playing hide and go seek and you know i'm clearly not competitive so you know i didn't want to win the game or anything um but i was hiding my friend was seeking and so my friend's dad was like oh hey margaret you know i I have this great hiding place and i was like oh awesome so he takes me you know around the corner of the house and he takes me to the crawl space of the house and in addition to you know being in this hiding spot he's like oh you know i i found a frog earlier today i put it under here you know because he knew that i liked frogs i mean i loved all animals but you know i you know anything i could catch in my yard snakes frogs you know you know like i said easy things to catch um and, and this man knew that and so him telling me that he had caught a frog, like immediately caught my interest. So he's like, Oh, I, you know, I put a frog under, under here earlier. And so I'm like, Oh, great. And so we go under the crawl space of the house. And I very happily went with him in no way. Am I thinking that this door to this crawl space is relatively small. Only a small amount of light is going under the house. And it was a decently large house. So it went back quite a ways. You know, I'm not thinking like what's going to happen. You know, I mean, I might never have been you know, seen again. Right. I mean, I wasn't thinking any of that. And, and of course, you know, let's be honest, there was no frog. But if there had been a frog, I mean, the odds of finding a frog in a huge crawl space, what, hours later, like that's going to happen. But as a little kid, I'm not thinking any of that. I'm just thinking I'm clearly going to win this game and I'm going to find this frog. And so that's all this man had to do was he had two interest points. He honestly only needed one, but he had two things and in no way, shape or form was I going kicking and screaming into this crawl space. I was like gladly like leading the way. In fact, I think I went under there, you know, and then he followed me. He went behind me. Um, and, and so it's, it's a perfect example of, of kind of how grooming works is it's finding things the child is interested in and then you know using that trust that you have kind of you know that they built because it you know it usually doesn't happen on the first day it's it's something that's built over time um and then using that trust that they have to to take those interest points you know that particular day i'll finish the story i was really lucky and nothing happened um but i still love that story because it does demonstrate grooming honestly so effectively
0: Thank you so much for sharing your story, not just on this platform right now, but in general, I think that it's, it's so important that we highlight this. And I really appreciate you being vulnerable and sharing that. I wanted to say you said, you know, you really highlighted how they use this trust. Um, How did that did that affect kind of your healing journey or your processing of of the event or the incident, I should say? It
1: does. It absolutely does. Um, Because just like the community having this adverse reaction when someone comes forward, a lot of times the victim has the same reaction. You know, this was someone that I cared for. This was someone that I trusted and honestly that I thought cared about me and I thought was my friend. And so when I went public with my story, I was worried about what was going to happen to this person. And I was worried about his family, and and my friend, and the reaction, and what was going to happen, you know, was my friendship with this friend going to be ruined, you know, and, and and you know, at the time, I, I didn't want anything bad to happen to this man, right, like, I, I didn't want him to go to jail, I didn't want, like, because I didn't fully understand what he had done, I didn't understand, one, that it was illegal, but I, I also just didn't really fully understand how wrong it was, and how bad it was, and so, in addition to the community having these reactions, a lot of times that is what the, the victim goes through is they're mentally thinking, you know, I care about this person. I trust this person, you know, maybe they didn't mean to do it or what are the reasons behind it? And and honestly, the reasons don't matter. What they did isn't okay, you know, but it's, it's sometimes part of your own healing journey is, is learning that, is getting to that point and recognizing that it doesn't matter. This person had no right to do, you know, whatever it is that they did, you know, in this specific example. Um, but but learning that is is a very important lesson. And, and sometimes that takes a while because you don't always connect the dots and realize immediately that what happened to you was wrong. I think sometimes, you know, in the stranger danger analogy, if you don't know the person, you don't have any connection, it's easier to make that association
2: But when you have this relationship, it's, it's, it's hard. It's harder. Margaret, I really appreciate everything that you're sharing. It's, it's bringing some questions to my mind and I I hope I can ask this one. Was there something that prompted you? Like did something happen that kind of lit the switch, if you will, in terms of I'm going to share my story publicly
1: Um, yes. So I, well, two things. I didn't actually share my story like publicly with the world until years later when I was 25. Um, but at 11 years old, so I was abused from five to seven and 11 years old was when I told for the very first time. And what had happened was we, um, actually had sexual abuse education in schools, which in 1994 was incredibly rare. Like I cannot stress enough. I mean, it's it's still in not in in some schools, right? I mean, it it was so rare. So I was so incredibly lucky. And I remember watching a series of videos and just getting really, really uncomfortable. And at the time, I didn't quite connect the dots myself and go, oh, this is sexual abuse. But I think it got the wheels turning, right? Something was firing and I was, I you know, it got me thinking about it. And so, uh, you know, a couple of weeks later. Um, a friend of mine and I were walking around the block in our neighborhood, you know, and you're also at that age, you're starting to talk about boys and who you have a crush on that kind of thing. And and that's what we were doing. And for whatever reason, I decided to tell my 11 year old friend. And again, back to how important that training is, my 11 year old friend recognized it and said, you know, Margaret, you were molested, right? And and, and molested is obviously not a word that every 11 year old has in their vocabulary, right? Um, so she recognized it and then, you know, knew exactly what to do, which is, you know, you need to tell a trusted adult, which in my case was my parents. And so I then told my parents um, and again, was very lucky. My, my parents believe me. So the first two people I told, believe me, I was able to go on and get help. Um, but yeah, I honestly attributed a lot to that education I had in schools is, is what prompted me, I believe to tell, but also is, is why my friend recognized it. Cause Had she not known what it was, she wouldn't have necessarily said, tell your parents. And then I wouldn't have necessarily made that own connect,
2: that connection. What an amazing situation. Like after the fact to know that the person you disclosed to such a young age was able to provide you with belief, like just to start by believing and then like support. That's profound. I think it speaks volumes to prevention, education. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, am I making an assumption that this wasn't the child of the person who assaulted you, or was it?
1: Baby.
2: Okay, different child. Okay. Yeah. Wow, that's pretty incredible. Yeah. Thank you. No, it, it really was. It really was.
0: That's an incredible story. I can't echo Joellen and F. I think that it just highlights the importance of responding to disclosures responsibly. And also the importance of supporters too, and and that violence prevention education, right? As an educator, that gives me hope. To be honest, <laughs> um, <laughs> that's that's really nice to hear. You know, Joelle, and I wanted to ask you: What are some um, factors that could make children and families vulnerable to things like grooming?
2: So the thing about grooming, what I what I believe is that there is a a huge risk that can potentially happen when a child is involved in activities, whether it's like religious activities, whether it's sports activities, whether there's, you know, math club or things like that, there's always potential. I think that there's more, there's risk factors at times, like for human, for human trafficking, for example, there are a lot of risk factors that we see with kids in the foster care system, especially females and that transitional age aging out they have a very heightened risk. There's also these risks with people who have low self-esteem as it relates to whether or not perpetrators are targeting individuals who may easily be manipulated, perhaps. Um, but I think risk is always inherent. I mean, as a parent of two, I I often worry about my children. Um, and you can't live in a bubble. You have to be able to engage in social activities and, you know, friendships and school events and religious things or what have you so you just have to be mindful but i would say if you had a person that was you know working a lot like as a parent who may be working a lot and unavailable or not checking in with their children or there's multiple children like a large sibling group i think those are the things where parents could be distracted or not realizing and and then things can happen when you rely on the supervision of others more than yourself. Perhaps there's more that you, you would want to offer on that, Margaret.
0: Yeah. I was going to ask Margaret, I don't know if you wanted to add on as far as vulnerabilities to things like grooming. Yeah, no, I mean, I think everything you said is,
1: is accurate and it's, it's honestly, I think being vigilant, it's having those, those tough conversations with your kids. And, and honestly, I don't, I don't think they have to be tough. Um, I think one of the things that my mom did really well, and one of the reasons why at 11 years old, I was able to go to her, um, was my parents from an early age encouraged asking questions and always told me like, there's no dumb questions, you know, you can always tell us anything, you can always ask us anything, you won't get in trouble. And to that point, I mean, I came home from school one day and, and asked my mom what a condom was. And I had absolutely no idea i'd I'd heard the the word at school and didn't want to admit i didn't know what it was you know and and for all i knew i was asking you know what some kind of exotic fruit was right i didn't know what it was and so instead of freaking out or getting mad or going where did you hear this why are you asking this you know my mom very calmly answered it and she answered it with an age-appropriate explanation and the beauty of it is, is, I have absolutely no idea what she said. I don't remember it at all, which means it wasn't traumatic, right? <laughs> like it was, it was just, you know, whatever experience. Um, but I think that the fact that she didn't panic or freak out and and I, because of that experience, I knew that I could then go to her. I could have those conversations. And so when the time came and I needed to talk to her, I could. And so I think it's the same thing with learning body parts and, and, sexual abuse education is it's it's starting those conversations early and it can be as simple as you know you can always talk to me you can trust me um you know i I think one thing that's very important to tell kids is that there should never be secrets and maybe explaining the difference between like a surprise and a secret you know like you might have a you know, a, a surprise birthday party. So, you know, maybe we're planning a surprise birthday party for mom. So we're not going to tell her for a few days, but that doesn't mean we're not going to tell her ever, right? So that being the difference of a surprise versus explaining a secret, where you maybe don't tell the person ever. And so I think explaining that difference and saying, you know, there's nothing that you can't, you know, tell, you know, your parents or or your trusted adults, you know, in your life. Um, so that kids do know that. So then, you know, when they do go to soccer practice or, you know, sleepovers, that they have some of those red flags and they have those experiences where they go, oh, huh, this seems weird. Maybe I should ask the question or I should tell mom and dad. And then mom and dad need to follow up with that. You know, hey, you know, with the sleepover, did anything, you know, happen that made you uncomfortable? Or, you know what I mean? Just asking those questions. And again, it, it just goes back to what Joellen
2: said about being engaged. Absolutely, I, I can say you're 100% spot on. I think the fact that you and your parents had a rapport speaks volume because if it was completely a new thing that you were asking and the response was so um, shocked, then it would show, okay, I can't ask questions again in the future. And exactly. so that's problematic. And so I love that it was a safe opportunity and it was an opportunity for your mom and you to kind of talk. It wasn't that significant, but it was significant enough that you actually remember it now. So it was right. positive.
1: Exactly. Mm-hmm. I remember asking it, but I don't remember, like I said, her response. And, and to your point, I mean, kids kids will test the waters, right? They'll drop little hints because they want to know how the adult is going to react. You know, it might be in the moment that they're trying to disclose or it might just be that they're thinking about it and so you know they could have used the condom scenario as a testing i wasn't testing in that situation i just truly didn't know what it was but the point is 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 kids will do those things and then they will remember it whether it's a test whether it's not a test they'll file that away and then go huh okay this was the adverse reaction can't talk to that person they're not going to be able to handle it well you know, and so they kind of make a mental note of these are the people I can talk to. And these are the people I can't. And then that absolutely affects, you know, what they will and won't talk about in the future.
0: Yeah, I I think that the reaction that your parents had was so perfect, because a lot of times, you know, I think another thing that can keep people vulnerable to things like grooming is like this thing about shame, right? Um, And if there's shame talking about sexual things, then that'll be another tool that predators can use as far as not like using shame to silence victims and things like that. So, so I love that it was just a no big deal question. And then Mm -hmm. with that, it just kind of opened the the door for future conversations. So I love that. I love that. Um, I wanted to shift the, the conversation just a little bit here. I know that a lot of our clients at the VSC are adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse. So Joellen, with that, what are some common reactions that you would like to highlight?
2: Definitely want to make sure to say that these are common reactions. They are not everyone's reactions. This is not a laundry list of, you know, my story is worse than your story. And these are, you know, the symptoms I'm feeling this is just informational purposes. So, Many individuals who have been assaulted, abused as a child um, do suffer flashbacks where they think about the episode, maybe in limited detail, maybe it happens once every 10 years, but occasionally that might happen. Sometimes people experience flashback flashbacks, excuse me, much more frequently. Um, depression is very common in terms of individuals who experience experience childhood sexual abuse. Um, Some individuals have extreme reactions and they have post-traumatic stress disorder and they have a very difficult time in new situations as it relates to that. You know, there could be some physical things like sexually transmitted infections that could have happened as a result of the abuse and that it's kind of lingering in adulthood. But, you know, unfortunately, other consequences are self-harm, whether that's self-harm through cutting, self-harm through, you know, eating habits, purging, things of that nature, um, sleep disturbances, panic attacks. So, unfortunately, it's, it's some negative consequences because they were a victim of something that an adult or another individual did to them, and it has deep-rooted and long-standing implications, unfortunately.
0: Thank you, John. And and the reason I asked that is because I hear a lot from survivors that they're they're feeling as though they might not be reacting, quote unquote, correctly to trauma. And I just want to highlight that it's very normal responses to things like trauma. It's it's also like you said, it's not a laundry list and also no one's gonna feel all of these things, but I just like to normalize the common reactions that what you are feeling is absolutely normal and how you're responding is normal too. And with that, Margaret, I, I was wondering. Uh, would you be willing to share some of the reactions that you felt yourself to, to your, um, incident?
1: Yeah. Um, so I would say I actually was a little bit the opposite of some of those reactions and it's been interesting, um, as I've been a speaker through the years, I've, I've learned that more and more people actually have responded the way that I did as well. Um, but I don't think it's talked about very often. And, and it may not even be studied just because honestly, I don't even know how you would, it'd be difficult to track. Um, but I think a lot of people, so basically what I did was I didn't feel good about myself. And I, I, I had that low self-esteem. Um, So as an athlete, I felt like I was constantly throwing accomplishments into like this pit of despair, so to speak. Um, So you'll, you know, you'll find a lot of athletes that want to be better than people or, you know, like to, to feel like they have this elevated status and in my mind, I was so far below people that I had to be an Olympian. I had to break a world record. You know, I had to have straight A's in school just to level the playing field to get back to ground zero. I was never doing those things to be better. I was doing those things just to bring myself back up to normal so I could walk into a room with people and, and feel like I feel good about myself. And so I, I think sometimes it's it's hard to, like I said, measure because when you have the kid who's really successful You know, we don't sit there and look at them and point fingers and go, well, what's wrong with that kid? You know, Um, but sometimes the reason for for that success is not it might be coming from a healthy place, but it might not be. It might be coming from a a similar place to what I was doing, which is, like I said, never feeling like you're good enough. And so constantly just overachieving.
2: Such an interesting point. and, And I think it's very important for people to realize The majority of people who come to agencies like ours for service, they do it because they're feeling the sense of depression and they're or they're encouraged by a loved one, a partner, a parent, um, because of some of these symptoms that are long lasting and lingering. And it's very rare to have anyone walk in the doors and somebody say, well, I'm a higher achiever, so I clearly need a healing, you know, that is I haven't heard that yet in all my years of providing service. So I would love to know how we can reach out and help more individuals who just haven't tapped into it. And, you know, we always talk about the people who have disclosed and never disclosed and, you know, percentages of uh, sexual assault victims and us really not knowing. So it's fascinating to think about who's out there, who's living a successful in quotes life, but maybe is really, really just adapting or adjusting to their past?
1: I would say absolutely. And, and I honestly don't know what the, the right answer is in terms of tracking it. Um, But I think, again, just that talking about it and that educational piece and the more that you talk about it. Um, Like I said, it, it's something that I've started talking about. And every time I talk about it, I there's usually at least one person in the audience that will be like, oh, my gosh, I didn't realize that's what I was doing. Like, I went to grad school or I was the first person in my family to go to college or, you know, I've had people tell me things like that. And they're like, I had no idea. And and I, you know, when you said that, it kind of clicked. So I think it's honestly, I think it's just talking about it and and having those conversations and, le- and again, letting people know that there's no one size fits all. Everyone reacts a little bit differently. And, and, you know, you, I have been studying myself for a long time now. Um, And so, you know, sometimes you figure these things out about yourself and, and other times other people help you, but you know, it's, it's however you get there in terms of healing is, is, you know, that doesn't matter. It's, it's the the healing is what's important.
0: Definitely. And, and I want to, Um, Just thank you again for sharing your story. I think that this this can really help someone who's listening who will also have that clicking moment that you were mentioning. I wanted to lean into it too a little bit more because we talk a little bit about on our podcast, we talk about like healthy coping mechanisms versus unhealthy coping mechanisms. So it seems like this overachieving kind of thing can be seen as like a positive thing by society, but we're seeing how it's kind of, it's not working with the healing journey aspect of it. So how did it kind of impact your healing? But also what healthy coping mechanisms do you turn to now? And how do you maintain this balance of achieving versus overachieving?
1: Um, So there's a couple things there. I think as a kid, um, I actually do think being in sports was super, super helpful. Um, I think because I had a natural outlet, honestly, for my energy, Um, that's part of the reason why I didn't turn to drugs and alcohol and, and, and some of the more traditional things that people do. And, you know, I think when you go through abuse, you, you have so many emotions and you kind of don't know what to do with those emotions. Right. And that manifests itself in this weird energy. And so I think because I was in a sport already, um, I had a place where I could go and just beat up on the water, right? Like I could just get rid of that energy, good, bad, negative, you know, whatever. Um, And nobody knew about it. Nobody, you know, we questioned why you're working hard. Right. And so that was a very healthy place for me. So I I, I think that's always a good option Um, as an adult and sort of figuring out the kind of positive and the negative of of what I was doing. um, That's been interesting. I mean, it's been interesting figuring out how to balance that. And and some of that I think comes with maturity, but it is also having those conversations with myself and saying, okay, like you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to, you know, do everything. Like people will love you, you know, like someone will love you. and, And you have people that care about you in your life. And it's, it is coming to an acceptance for lack of a better word um in recognition and in realizing that because that sometimes can be hard it's it's hard to let love in it's hard to acknowledge it i think when it's there um and so that has definitely been something with an adult i've struggled with i'm not a very trusting person and you know i can say all of the the really close friends that i have at some point we've honestly gotten in like an argument because i was always expecting them to leave i was always expecting them to just kind (laughs) of peace out and at some point they just got mad at me and were like margaret stop like stop pushing us away stop expecting us to just leave like we're not going anywhere and and then once they did that yeah i was just kind of like oh okay like you know I, i i was very like i once i accepted it i was fine but it was like up to this point up to this point up to this point And then, like I said, it it almost took having that conversation of them just being like we're not going anywhere, then I was like oh okay right and it's been fine after that um. But I've almost, you know, unfortunately, I've almost had to go through that experience with with everyone that I'm really close to in my life, because, again, it's not trusting. But I think it also goes back to I I do struggle with the belief that someone can love me or the belief that someone, you know, and that goes back to like those want that wanting to be perfect thing. So it's, it's definitely an ongoing thing that I'm still working on. And have I gotten better? Yes. Am I am I perfect? Am I still more? you know, am I done? No, I'm still working on it.
2: I would love to ask, I mean, first of all, I could ask you five questions off of what you just <laughs> said, which is really exciting. But you said something early on and when you were making your point that I, I really wanted to ask because I never had an opportunity to just speak to an Olympian before, but you were younger and you were very disciplined in training. And, and I always think about the body keeping the score because the body does, and you had an outlet of swimming and beating the water, as you said. I wonder, and I, I was just putting it out there, As a younger person training for the Olympics and kind of doing it every day, probably multiple times a day, that was like physically there for you to outlet and get your feelings out maybe. Um, As you got older, I don't know if your training reduced, but did you see any correlation between like less time in the pool and maybe like more of your emotions kind of coming to light?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, so one of the things that was interesting was when I was 11, I went to counseling and my counselor actually told my parents the, you know, that when Margaret's an adult, um, she'll probably need to go back to counseling. And that counselor was 100% right. And I mean, there were several things there. I mean, some of that was was becoming sexually active, dating and, and figuring out all of that. Um, but also it had a lot to do with kind of what you're saying and starting to think about those things, which again, correlated a lot with, as you start dating, you start thinking about this trauma you experienced and can sex be healthy? How do I do this in a healthy way and not be afraid? How do I have a relationship? How do I trust someone? So it brings up a lot of issues that make you go back and think about your trauma. And that absolutely, I would say, expressed itself in the pool. And Interestingly enough, um, when I did eventually go public with my story in 2008, um, it was really hard for me to, to I, I only swam for about two more years after that, but it was really difficult for me to continue training after that, because I think up until the point I had gone public, I, I always just had this like wall, this kind of exterior that I just no, I never let anyone penetrate, like no one could get over it. And all of a sudden when I let that wall down, it was like the floodgates opened. And you know, try as I might, I I couldn't get them back up again. And and it was healthy to not get them back up again. But what I found, and I didn't know this was gonna happen, was I also, for lack of a better way of saying it, I, I didn't feel like I was as tough in practice. Before where I could put my head down and just grind it out and, and and do these just really difficult sets and and just push my way through it i really struggled doing that after i had gone public with my story and and to me i think i attribute that a lot with because i was being i was in a healthy place you know um i was transitioning and i was getting ready i think for the next step but it it did attribute, I think, to having that wall kind of come down, um, and emotionally being more vulnerable. But it, like I said, it, it made training more
2: difficult, if that makes sense. It's really great to hear all the points that you brought up because it's just an interesting thing. You actually really had to move from physical acceptance and coping to dealing with the emotions. And that is not easy. And I appreciate that you mentioned that you were in counseling as a child and as an adult, and I think it's important to say here, you know, just going to counseling one time and saying, I've done counseling, that's great. I'm glad people are going for anyone listening, but understand you need like a booster shot sometimes. Mm-hmm. Things will happen in life that you need to kind of realize, ooh, I need a professional to guide me through this because venting to my friends, and by the way, venting and, and could be an unhealthy coping mechanism. It could just be a repeated cycle of venting out bad issues. So finding a professional to process those feelings, behaviors, emotions is super important. So thanks for bringing up so many great points and you're doing a great job. So whatever you've done and whatever kind of path (laughs) that you took, I can tell you, you're still successful and I know you're competitive and you're winning. Well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that.
0: Mm -hmm. I love that. And I just want to highlight kind of what you said, Joellen, about you know, we always say that healing isn't linear and I think that it shows a lot that you know healing journeys look different for everyone, but also I think that it it's it's a really awesome sign to know that you do need that booster shot like you were mentioning, Jal, and like knowing yourself being like, hey, this thing is making me overwhelmed. I'm feeling um, you know, some past experience are coming up. I need to talk to someone about this. I think that's a that's a really powerful um, and a uh, empowering thing to have in your back pocket, knowing yourself that way. Um, you mentioned, and, and again, I just want to thank you for all that you do for, you know, survivors of sexual violence by sharing your story and being on this platform. Um, you know, you mentioned that you went public with your story in 2008. So I, I'd like to talk a little bit about that. Could you speak a bit about what it was like coming forward and sharing your story publicly and, you know, what made you feel ready to do so? And was it healing at all?
1: Yes. Um, so it was interesting. I have known since I was 11 years old that I wanted to be involved in some capacity in the, the sexual abuse, prevention education world. And I I didn't know what path that would take. I didn't know what that would mean. Um, I was a psychology major in school, criminology minor. Um, so I, you know, I definitely knew I was interested. I, I learned very quickly that I would not be a good psychologist. So I didn't go that route. Um, but I always knew I wanted to be involved. And, and somewhere in my early 20s, I thought, okay, you know, I could tell my story publicly in that could be something. And I made my first Olympic team at 21 years old in 2004 and thought about going public then and was absolutely horrified by the whole idea, was not ready in any way, shape or form. And so just totally was like, nope, not, no, not doing it. Um, And there were a couple of reasons for that. One, I just wasn't ready. Two, in my mind, in order to be a success story, you have to be successful. And in my mind, I went to the Olympics and I got fifth place. And so I was not successful, and so I didn't feel at that time that I could tell my story because I didn't have. Again, this goes back to that overachieving. I didn't have the merits that I needed to have in my mind to successfully tell my story and have anyone care about it. And so, four years later, you know, two thousand eight rolls around, and and a series of things happened. I think one, I was more mature at twenty five. Um And I was in a healthier place. I had started counseling again when I was an adult at 23 was when I went back to counseling. So at that point, I had been in counseling for two years. And I think that had a lot to do with why I was in a healthier place. And, you know, a couple things happened. One, because um, I actually decided I was going to go public with my story before the Olympic Games. But I, I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to go public before the games and then have all the media and all the attention on me because I just didn't want the attention. Um, But I made the decision to do it before the games. Um, And then part of that decision was, okay, you know, it's, in my mind, I had always thought that, okay, I'm gonna tell this story, you know, when I'm married, 2.5 kids, white picket fence, you know, and it's gonna be great. And then I think I just like grew up and realized like, that's never going to happen. Like nobody wakes up one morning and just like wants to talk about sexual abuse. Right. Like that's, I could be 90 years old and not want to do this. And so I think once I recognized that I was like, okay, well, if it's going to be terrible, I might as well just do it and get it over with. And so that was a big step, I think was just recognizing that there, there was no reason to not do it now because it was going to feel the same. It was going to be hard. It was going to be scary. Um, no matter when i did it. and so that was one rec- you know recognition that i had. um i did very much want to use the olympics as a platform because i realized that that was kind of my one opportunity to have the world listen and 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 hopefully let other survivors know that you know this this does happen. it does happen to people that are very successful and you're not alone. so that was very important to me. Um, and then interestingly enough, you know, I, I had an amazing Olympics, but I still didn't win a gold medal and my world record was broken. And so after the Olympics, the fact that I still felt like I had enough value and the fact that I, I, I recognized that I didn't need that gold medal. Um, I think that was a really big step for me personally, because in my mind, that was sort of always the end all that was the the big goal was having this gold medal. And that's when I can do it. And so all of a sudden getting to this this place of peace within myself and saying, I I don't need a gold medal. Like my story is enough. People will care because it happened. And and I have a right to tell my story no matter what. And and so I think getting to that place of peace um, was extremely important to me. And, you know, and again, goes back to that validation of myself and and realizing that a gold medal wasn't going to make me a better person. It wasn't going to make me any happier you know um yeah it would be great to have one but it, it 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 doesn't change who i am as a person um and so a lot of that i think was just that personal growth of me recognizing that what i had accomplished was was pretty significant um and being proud of myself which was hard that sounds crazy i know but um it, i had a really hard time being proud of myself because i was always looking forward to the next thing. I was never looking back or patting myself on the back. It's like, I was just looking, I would do one accomplishment and then I would look forward immediately. What's the next thing, what's the next goal? What's the next goal? So I think taking a step and saying, no, I am proud of myself. What I've done is is pretty amazing. Um, that was kind of all tied in with that. And so, I, like I said, 2008 was a really pivotal year for me, You know, not just because I, I had an amazing Olympics, um, but I think because of the personal growth that I had done, And deciding to go public with my story. And then, of course, you know, I've got amazing friends, and my two best friends were in China with me. And um, these are my two childhood best friends. And they of course had known, I had told them when I was in high school. And so we went to the Great wall of China one day and and literally I said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about doing this. And of course, you know, both of them were so supportive, you know, cause they were my sounding board of, is this a good idea? Should I not do this? What do you think about, you know what I mean? And so, you know, you, you always gotta run everything by your friends, right? And so that was kinda me getting that last final, you know, Okay, if you will. Um, and then I, when I went back to the States, did it.
2: Wow. That's pretty impressive. It's like monumental. And I yeah. think it's important. I think it's important to recognize, like, probably in the moment, you knew a lot was happening with the Olympics. And that was, you know, a lot to be proud of. But the fact that you're reflecting now on how proud of yourself you are in terms of making some decisions, I think that is powerful because not everybody gets to go to the Olympics. But many people get to kind of come out and share, disclose, get therapy, get healing. And sometimes that's just the first step is being able to acknowledge and say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take time for me and I'm going to walk forward and move forward from this.
1: I would agree with that. And and I think, honestly, I think a lot of survivors have a hard time, regardless of what the accomplishment is. I think they have a hard time sometimes acknowledging that and giving themselves credit right maybe you know maybe it's it's going on a date i'll be honest i mean i think dating is one of the absolute hardest most terrifying things in the world and so just going on a date for me that's always something that i have to pat myself on the back for because it's something i am terrified of doing i hate doing it you know i would rather sit at home with my cat every night of the week and so it, you know, it it's it doesn't have to be this this grand thing like the Olympics. It can just be something small, but that's challenging for you. And I think again, it's it, it's easy to go, well, yeah, dating's easy for everybody else. Like, you know, gosh, Margaret, like you shouldn't be so proud of yourself because you did this thing that's so easy for everyone. But it's not easy for me. And so learning to pat myself on the back when appropriate and know. Then my goals are not always the same as everybody else. My progression is not always the same as everybody else. And, you know, to, like I said, take my own time. In in, in, in swimming, we say stay in our own lane, you know? Um, but it's, it's a lot easier said than done. It's really hard to do when you see other people around you, you know, and especially with social media these days, everybody makes everything look so perfect and so easy. Mm-hmm you know, all I have to do is go pick, post a picture of me on this date smiling and everyone's like, oh, she had a great time. And yet inside, I'm like terrified and wanting to like run for the hills, you know? And so it's 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 sometimes hard to stay in your own lane and in your head and realize that, you know, you are doing fine and just pat yourself on the back
2: when you you reach your own goals. I think that's a really good point in terms of the idea of, you know, maybe you don't have anxiety about being in the Olympics, but you're having some feelings or resistance about dating, like some worry. And I, I think that perspective or the optics on that are interesting because you're you're saying something that many people probably fear and feel is like, it's a risk to go out there and meet some other individual. I don't know who they are. Are they going to reject me? This, that, and the other. When really with the Olympics, it was like you, it was you against your time, You know, your personal mm-hmm. best. So now you're kind of... This dating thing is like you're putting yourself out there in a different way. So it's fascinating.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I love that you brought up kind of how everyone has their own milestones kind of that they should celebrate too. And so just kind of going back to that individuality piece, everyone reacts different, but also everyone's milestones as they do these healing big steps, I should say, uh, should be celebrated. Um, With that, you know, how did people actually first react? When you did share your story and did it affect you a certain way yeah
1: um people were amazing they you know i of course with like anyone i was terrified of, of going public i was terrified that what the reaction would be and and i honestly never worried that it would be a negative reaction i was more worried that just everyone would be indifferent and no one would care at all and then i would have this i just told them the biggest secret of my life and and nobody even picks up the paper and wants to read about it. Nobody cares. And that was what my fear was. And so, you know, when I had gone public, um, I had discussed a couple of different ways, you know, with the people around me of how did I wanna do that? And, and you know, I could have gone public in my local newspaper. And, and I said, no, you know, I don't wanna do that. If I'm gonna do this, I wanna go big or go home, right? And so I actually um, met with a reporter from the AP, Associated Press, And, you know, we did an article that way. And of course, with that, there's the chance that it will never get picked up. I mean, there's a chance that it could be really big, but there's, like I said, there's a chance that it won't get picked up and it won't be read at all. But I wanted to put myself in a position where, again, if I'm going to tell this, this huge secret, I want to set myself up for success and set myself up to help the most people. And, the reaction was was everything I needed it to be and and was afraid it wouldn't, which was it, it was just overwhelmingly positive. I mean, I I think the day that my story came out, um, I think I had like sixty seven thousand hits on my website or something like that. Like it was absurd. I think my website crashed. And I mean, it was just it was so overwhelmingly positive. And and, and that was never anything I had ever dreamed of. And and. I don't want to say it wasn't something I wanted. It just wasn't something I had thought about, right? I had just, I had hoped that I would help a few people and that people would read it. And and then just having this outpouring of love and support was was nothing I had ever even, I guess, allowed myself to think. And so um, it was a very healing experience to realize that that it did matter and that people do care. And, you know, there are other survivors out there and other people that go through this. And, and, you know, at that point in time, I, I actually knew one or two other survivors. Um, most of my childhood, I clearly didn't know any because, you know, we don't talk about this, we don't share it. And so you tend to not know other people. And, and I think that's actually probably been my favorite thing since coming forward is, is people tell me all the time now their stories. And, and, and I'm always so honored by that. Um, because obviously I know how hard that is and what a big deal that is to tell someone. Um, but, but realizing that you're not alone, I think that's the biggest power is, is, you know, telling your story so that others know. Um, but then the same thing when, whenever anybody tells me their story, it just reminds me that I'm not alone in this.
0: I love that. Thank you so much. I'm, it sounds like, it was definitely healing. And, and it's great to hear that there was an outpouring of positivity. And, Absolutely. Absolutely. And that I think that that's a great sign. Right. Um, You know, you know, you mentioned something about you were afraid that people would not, uh, would they, they would be indifferent to it. So I wanted to ask, um, and what are some effects that minimizing a survivor's emotions and experience can have on the healing journey?
2: Well, I definitely want to say that, you know, I believe when someone else is minimizing emotions, it's, it's emotional abuse, like it's a tactic. It could be passive, it could be aggressive, but most of the times it's very, very subtle. And it's like a power and control thing. Um, so like in an abusive relationship, minimizing happens. But now if you look in terms of the support or minimizing the support that people receive, you know, that happens often. We we work with not just the primary victims of sexual violence, but also their family members. And through that process, we do hear and see firsthand some of the subtle ways that individuals are indicating, like, maybe this wasn't as severe, maybe this wasn't as difficult. And, and I believe that that's a person's defense defense mechanism. They're, they're kind of rationalizing an event and putting up these protective factors in their mind of why this couldn't have happened or what, what created, what were the signs, symptoms and what the flow chart of how this happened in order to kind of like personally or emotionally defend themselves. Um, I, I really wanna just kind of say like, there are reasons to minimize certain things. Like if you're in a crisis situation, and you are experiencing a flood of emotions, but you have children to take care of, you have a job to do, it's normal and healthy to, in the moment, minimize the experience so that you can get through the short-term, but it shouldn't happen persistently and over time for the long-term because that will debilitate the healing. Um, If I was gonna say a message to anyone out there, I hope that message would be what Margaret mentioned earlier that people that she disclosed to believed her and they just left it at that. Just leave it at that, be supportive and believe them and connect individuals with professionals because it's, it's wonderful to have loved ones support us, but at a certain point, sometimes they're holding a lot of space emotionally that might be best suited for a professional to do. So there's no bias, there's no kind of hard feelings, God forbid that relationship becomes estranged and now like the secrets of your life are sitting with someone instead of with a professional. So these are the kind of things um, to consider and ultimately understanding that minimization has its and its purpose at times, but in the long run, it could be very damaging.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, Margaret, at the beginning of this podcast, we defined that umbrella of sexual violence. And when we met previously to discuss this podcast, you mentioned that at one point in, you know, during your processing that, you know, I'm not a rape survivor, so it's not so bad. Others have it worse. So we just talked about, you know, minimization and things like that. Um, Do you... uh, did you find yourself kind of internalizing and like minimizing that experience and how did that affect you? And then how do you now advocate for yourself and move, move past that minimization?
1: Absolutely. Um, that actually had, was probably one of the main reasons that I was scared to go public with my story was I wasn't raped, you know, thank God. And, but because of that, I just always felt like, well, what happened to me really wasn't that bad. You know, it, there are so many worst case scenarios. And so, in my mind, because it wasn't, you know, the worst case scenario, that kind of led into that narrative that I just felt like, well, my story's not that bad. and I you know, no one's gonna want to hear it, and I don't I don't deserve to talk about it because other people have been through worse and i i think that's obviously a really damaging train of thought and so for me um getting getting to a point again of realizing that my story mattered um and understanding it i mean a lot of 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 my understanding was recognizing that i was groomed and and you know part of the reason why i struggle with trust is because of that grooming process and so it wasn't this, you know, one hit wonder. It was this, this journey for two years that I was on all of a sudden to have the rug pulled out for me and realizing that this person had been hurting me the whole time. And so, you know, back to the whole dating thing, it, you know, I, I am forever looking at the people around me who are married and have kids and, and dating is so easy. And every, all of my favorite TV shows, you know, they're the, the women just love going on dates and I'm like, why can't I be like that? Like, how do these people want to enjoy this? And why am I not like that? How is it so easy for them? And so I'm so hard on myself. And again, I think it goes back to that understanding of, okay, for two years, you had someone systematically setting you up to harm you. And that all goes back to that trust. And I I didn't realize how important that was. Because in my mind, it was always, well, you weren't raped. So dating, sex, it shouldn't be a big deal. Right? Like, yeah, what happened to you maybe wasn't the greatest, but like it, again, it wasn't worst case scenario. And so I think understanding your own trauma and, and kind of sitting down with it, taking it to lunch, so to speak, um, and recognizing the effects. Right. And I think the, the time frame for me, the grooming process for me that has had a lot of, of, you know, effects on my adult relationships and my own healing. And again, once I've kind of figured that out, it's like, I've given myself permission to say, okay, like, you know, one, I'm allowed to talk about my story, but two, I'm allowed to to heal in my own time. And, and, you know, nothing is too small. I mean, none of this is okay.
2: None of it's okay. Absolutely. Yeah. And I want, I wanted to just say like, there's always going to be someone who has it worse in life. There's always going to be these tragic, stories whether we hear about them or not but we're still dealing with what we're dealing with it's still a journey like accepting the your story is your story and i really just wanted to say that like we're not here to find the the person that has had the worst victimization and they get a trophy like that's not how There's life no works? No, <laughs> no, not at all. It, it, just because like you might not be the highest point on the the bowl doesn't mean that you're not entitled to share and then receive care because of your your trauma. So, and I want to make sure the audience realizes and understands that it's super important.
1: Absolutely. Well, and and another thing that I think people on that same line of thought, another thing that a friend of mine and I were talking about actually um, in the last several months was the almost, the almost happening. And and that can be traumatic. I think, again, this goes back to the conversation of me feeling like, oh, I wasn't raped. The end result wasn't as bad as it could be. We always look at everything was, well, what happened? What was the result? Right. But that's not necessarily what's damaging. I mean, it can be, but a lot of times what's damaging is the lead up, right? In my case, the lead up was the grooming. That's what caused the damage. And you know this friend of mine was um basically attacked in a nightclub and you know ended up that she had amazing friends and you know was not raped and you know um you know taken away and murdered or something um so the end result ended up being a good one um but that didn't mean that she didn't suffer effects that didn't mean that she didn't every time she went to a nightclub um worry that someone was going to roofie her drink or worry that she was going to be attacked or worry that why is this guy talking to me or hitting on me or what's his end goal? You know what I mean? Like the the end result not happening didn't change the fact that she was victimized and that she had this adverse experience and that has stayed with her. And, you know, like I said, it was this really fascinating conversation we had about that. And again, it goes back to that minimization of what other people do um, but also we ourselves do, and and just think again. Well, absolutely. You know, again, if it didn't happen the way in our mind
2: we think it should have, um, we don't always count it when we should be. And those emotional scars—they can be vi- more visible than even a physical scar. Or, you know, absolutely. The the attempted sexual assault is sexual assault. Yes. I mean, it's taking away something the person has and should be cherished and protected and there should be consent and that's been violated that violation in itself is enough
1: absolutely that trust is gone the ability to to go into a place sort of freely is is taken away from you
0: definitely you know when we would you know during covid we haven't been able to go out and do a lot of outreach events but when we would there'd be a lot of people coming to the table and saying hey you know you you help people of you know who have gone through trauma, is this trauma? And they'll always ask. And I always say, you know, you define what, you know, we don't define trauma for you. It's your story. Right. And so I really appreciate this conversation that we're having. And I hope that whoever's listening who might be minimizing their feelings or minimizing their or comparing their, you know, stories with others. It's like your story is your story. And I appreciate you saying that you own your story, Margaret. Um, kind of jumping ahead here, what, speaking of that story, Margaret, what is something that you want people to take away from it? Um, I think for me, the biggest thing is at the end of the day,
1: you know, this is something awful, right? It's something terrible, but it's it's not the end of the world. There's always, a light at the end of the tunnel there's always hope at the end of the tunnel and you know sexual assault sexual abuse it is a road bump a significantly large road bump if you will it might be several road bumps but that's all it is it's a road bump and it's i think it's easy to get caught up in the moment especially when you're going through it um and and honestly even sometimes when you first start heat like counseling because when you first start counseling it could be years later but you're it's like cutting a wound open right you're reopening that wound and it feels fresh it feels like it's happening again and you know it it, it is is it's uncomfortable it's not a pleasant feeling um because we typically don't tend to think about it because why would we want to you know um but I think it's, it's just knowing that, you know, whatever a person's goals are. And again, those goals are going to be defined differently per person, whether it is the Olympics, whether it is just being in a happy relationship or dating, um, those goals really are possible and they can be achieved. They take a little work, you know, it doesn't necessarily happen overnight. Um, but it's, you know, it's possible. And I, I think just kind of a message of hope is, is my biggest thing is that, you know, people are pretty amazing in the things that we can go through, um, and the things that we can survive. And, um, it, you know, I think one of the things that I have learned from this is honestly how strong that I am. And that was actually something that I, I started doing as an athlete and I, I didn't know I was doing it. Um, but I would start looking around at my competitors and in my mind, I would play these, these games where I would just think, well, you know, what have they survived? What have they lived through? You know, I've, I've actually been through something and and I didn't know what they had been through. I didn't, you know, I didn't, they might've been did the same thing I'd been through. Um, but in my mind, I would start playing these games actually as far back, I think as my late teens, you know, and, and once I recognized I was doing that, I realized, you know, that's a really powerful tool, um, kind of tapping into this and realizing that, I, you know, I am a survivor and I think that that talks about that goes into that transition from the word victim to survivor. Um, I intentionally use both words because I think it's important to take back that word victim. A lot of people associate it very negatively. Um, But I really do think that it's a transition, you know, someone is victimized. It's not something that they asked to have happen. You know, it's something that happens to them that was not their choice. And then becoming a survivor, that is your choice. And I think that's something you individually have to choose. Someone else can't choose that for you. And it's an ongoing process. It's not something that happens overnight. You know, that's something I choose every day and it's harder some days than others. you know, some days it's a little bit easier. Um, you know, but it's it's something that I choose and it's something I'm constantly working towards. And I think just by by definition of working towards it and trying to heal and trying to get better, that to me is is what becoming a survivor is, is it's taking back control of your life in, in whatever way that that is. But I, I very much believe that that's possible. And and again, that doesn't mean that you're never going to have flashbacks. It doesn't mean you're not going to have triggers. It doesn't mean you're not going to have bad days, right? You're human, but it's that process of working towards the future. And, and again, I really do believe that, you know, all positive things are, are possible.
0: You are absolutely incredible, Margaret. Like, <laughs> like, I'm, I'm like my, there's so many chills happening right now. Um, I just heard so much in that, like empowerment and, and that agency and the owning of the word survivor. And also I want to highlight, you know, taking back the word victim too. Um, absolutely incredible. You know, I think that's a Wonderful place to sign off. But before I do, I just wanted to know if there's anything else you'd like to add that we may not have addressed. And if there's anything you would like to say to survivors out there, maybe particularly to athletes or or sexual abuse survivors.
1: Um, You know, I think we we covered pretty much everything. Um, But again, I think it's just that message of hope. I think it's that message that you are always stronger than you think you are. You know, you really can survive anything. You may not want to, (laughs) you know, Lord knows you don't, you probably don't want to. Um, But I think it's just knowing that you are always stronger than you think you are and you can survive anything. And again, you don't have to do it alone. I think that's very important is that there are so many people that care and that want to help. And, you know, I I absolutely wish that everyone out there would be as lucky as I was and have the first two people they tell believe them. Unfortunately, that is not the case. Uh, Statistically, that is very rare. Um, But I think just knowing that there are people out there, you know, if you have to tell 85 people, tell 85 people, right? Like someone will believe you. So it's, it, like I said, I wish that everybody was as lucky as I was and would find it on the first try. Um, but if you don't find it on the first try, don't give up. Just keep trying because like I said, there are people that care and, and that will help. And, you know, you, you can go on and, and have a happy life.
0: I love that. I think that's a wonderful place to sign off. Um, and I'd like to thank the listener for listening to the Victim Service Center podcast the VSC is a nonprofit organization that provides free confidential counseling services for victims of any kind of trauma in Central Florida. To learn more about our services, please visit VictimServiceCenter.org. And to everyone listening, healing is not linear and you are not alone. And thank you so, so much, Allen, and so, so, so much, Margaret, for joining us today.
2: Absolutely, thank you. Thank you, Margaret.